After delivering the verdict Wednesday morning, U.S. Attorney Robert Brewer had this to say about the Gina Champion Kane case. This is by far the largest Ponzi scheme discovered in the district. Once a prominent restaurateur, Champion Kane is now a criminal after she pleaded guilty to a $400 million scheme that defrauded investors. Those funds were used to prop up her business and her lifestyle. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. To get a deeper understanding of what's going on, we have two reporters who have been covering this for some time. We have Lori Weisberg, who is on the business team who covers hospitality, and Greg Moran on the public safety team who covers legal affairs. Let's get people up to speed. Who exactly was Gina Champion Kane, and how did she rise to prominence? Uh, well, as you mentioned, um, she's a well-known restaurateur. Um, I should say former restaurateur because most of her restaurants are now closed. Um, and she was known, um, I think probably a lot of people might know her for the patio restaurants um, in, in Mission Hills and um, Pacific Beach and um, in Liberty Station. And so she um, she rapidly expanded. She had bought Saska's institution in um, Mission Beach for decades. So um, she had come to prominence um, in the last decade, as I say, as a, as a high-profile restaurateur. Mm-hmm. And how do, exactly did this Ponzi scheme work? Uh, can you give us kind of the broad overview of what she was accused of doing, Greg? Yeah, it was... Uh, 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 kind of a classic Ponzi scheme is, is what Brewer said. She recruited new investors uh, to invest in a uh, scheme that, uh, Maury can correct me on this, that that basically sort of exploited uh, a, a part of the procedural law in California for getting a liquor license. If you want to get a liquor license, you have to put an enormous amount of money uh, into an escrow account that's held by the state uh, while they do a big background check and make sure that you can have a liquor license. And her pitch to investors was she knew a lot of uh, people who wanted to open uh, restaurants and get a liquor license. They didn't have the capital to do that. So if the investors gave her money, they would park it in an escrow account uh, controlled by Chicago Title and uh, uh, just leave it there and nothing would happen to it. If the license came through for the uh, uh, aspiring restaurateur, they would get their money back plus interest. Uh, if it did not, they would get their money back plus interest. Um, and and uh, this was the pitch. It kind of relied on her personality, her reputation. She had uh, uh, other elements of it. She had a bunch of uh, names and, and liquor licenses uh, that uh, made it look official that I think were actually expired licenses. Lori can correct me on that or, or just kind of dead letters. Right, but, right. Uh, uh, kept on uh, recruiting people. And when they put in money, um, instead of it going into this supported, supposedly uh, strong box of a, of an escrow that nobody could touch it, it went into bank accounts that she controlled and could siphon the money off of. Um, and the scheme went on for many years. And like all Ponzi schemes, it relies on recruiting new investors to pay off current or old investors and to siphon off money for your own well-being. And eventually that's going to collapse. Um, it took a while here, but eventually it did. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I should point out that, you know, they referred to it as a $400 million scheme, that that was the amount of money that went in and out of these accounts. And I think, as Greg mentioned, to lend it um, some credibility and to keep 
to be able to continue to recruit, recruit new investors, the, the plea agreement that was reached indicates that about $200 million was returned, whether it's principal or interest, so that investors thought, oh, wow, this really is a real deal. I'm getting my money. I'll roll it over and, and put more money in. So um, they were led to believe it was for real. But at, toward the end of the whole thing, was collapsing. Um, I want to point out there was uh, one of the charges was obstruction, and, and she did a lot of things. When she learned over a year ago that there was um, an investigation, both civil and criminal, she started hiding things. But one of the and deleting emails and shredding things. But one of the things she did, you know, almost a, an act of desperation, she tried to raise back in August um, 150 million dollars in hopes of propping up her draining bank accounts and to return money to investors. So it would look like um, her scheme was on the up and up. Um, but obviously that that failed to materialize. Mm -hmm. And what was the thing that kind of got her caught? What were the chinks in the armor that really, you know, caused this Ponzi scheme to collapse? Well, there was, um, we're told that there was an investor, we don't know if it's investor victim, who went to the Securities and Exchange Commission and um, and tipped the SEC off to this. They started probing, and then the FBI um, joined in in the parallel criminal investigation. But much of this was revealed over a year ago, um, or about a year ago, via the SEC investigation. And this criminal probe um, took even longer to nail down all these criminal charges. Mm -hmm. And. Uh What's she facing, Greg? What is kind of the worst case scenario? And you give us a sense of what's going to happen once she finally receives her sentence. Uh, yeah, kind of broadly, because there are still a, a, a lot of other uh, steps to, to go through, I think. So, I mean, in, in the strict reading of the law, which she would face a maximum, I think, of 15 years in uh, federal prison. That's five years for each of the three charges of conspiracy, securities, fraud and obstruction of justice that she pleaded guilty to. However, she has an opportunity uh, to lessen that. She is also, as part of her plea agreement, she also signed a cooperation agreement uh, where she says that she will essentially give evidence and information against other as yet uncharged uh, individuals or entities that were part of this scam. In return, the prosecutor said if, they, if her cooperation in that uh, way is deemed to be substantial, uh, then they will ask the judge uh, for a reduction in her in her sentence. Um, so at this point, it's hard to say. We don't know how much cooperation she. I'm sure she's. I suspect she has already been cooperating to an extent. Um, it it kind of depends on how many people they bring in, how many she can bring down, how instrumental that is. Uh, there there could be uh, you know a, a, a plethora of investigations going on state and federal around the country. This was a nationwide scam. Um, so she's got she's got to do that. Um, when that'll happen, it's it's unknown. Generally, cooperators, as a general rule, um, don't get sentenced until the last person in that they're cooperating against has disposed of their case, and then they get sentenced. That can be years. So, I mean, there are some cases. You know, the the Fat Leonard uh, is another fraud case, Navy bribery fraud case. Uh, Leonard Francis pleaded guilty. I think what, six years ago now, and he still hasn't been sentenced because there's still a bunch of people waiting out there to, to either go to trial or to get charged. So um, she can, I don't think she'll get the 15. I mean, uh, it's hard to say how much less she'll get. 
But I think uh, at the news conference yesterday, uh, Brewer was, I think, made a point of saying she will be punished. Um, she, I, I think it's almost impossible to work off a 15-year exposure by cooperating. She is going to be uh, losing her liberty for a period of time. Um, it's just hard to tell at this point how much that'll be. Mm-hmm. And also, what is the scope? Like, how many people were harmed in this scheme? They refer to hundreds. Um, um, when the SEC first filed their papers, they talked about like about four dozen investors. But I think they've discovered that it's far more, and there were groups. And, and so right now, they're just you know the U.S. Attorney's Office is using the term hundreds of investors, and you've already seen many of these different investors. That, um, number at least 100 starting to file lawsuits against um, Chicago Title, who Greg mentioned um, was holding the escrow accounts, and um, they are. We should mention that they they are still looking at what they call co-conspirators. Um, one other person was charged yesterday. That was the uh, chief financial officer for Genus Company American National Investments. He got a charge of conspiracy. But I there are a number of investors who believe that um, Chicago Title is complicit, or at least their um, escrow officers that were part of this scheme. Um, I understand they're under criminal investigation as well, but we haven't heard anything yet. Chicago Title's attorney saying, as far as we know, we are not a target of this investigation, but there are multiple lawsuits going after Chicago Title and already one group of, of investors, about 43 of them, uh, just recently settled the Chicago title and, and are getting it back about 65 percent of what they lost. So um, it'll be interesting to see as we go on if there are others who were complicit in this scheme. Yeah, we had uh, we had asked that question yesterday of the U.S. Attorney's Office after the news conference. How many people are we talking about here? You know, and they they didn't put a number on it. I, I don't know if they can really at this point. I get the sense they're still kind of unraveling a lot of this. I'm sure they have a real good sense of, of the universe. Well, oftentimes you don't know, we don't find out in these fraud, in these Ponzi schemes. Partly that's uh, the reluctance of people who have been swindled to be identified. You know, you don't want to be identified as a sucker. Uh, and you don't also want to be identified as a, as a target for another scheme. So um, we may never know, but just the amount of money that was in play uh, that $400 million is the total estimate in and out. You know, that, that wasn't just the, the profit. I think that's just the total amount of money that was circulating around during these uh, seven or eight years of, that they charged in the in the complaint. Uh, I mean, that amount of money, that's a lot of people. You know, I mean, that's a lot of people. Because mm-hmm. the way Brewer described it, you know, I'm sure there were some well-heeled, wealthy people who, who, who thought this is great. I'm going to invest in this and got burned. But he also said there were a number of people uh, who lost their retirements there, just wiped out, you know. Um, and that is that generally when they put it that way, you're not talking about the 1%. You know, you're talking about, you know, people worked there 30, 40 years, built up a retirement, and now, you know, are looking at dust in their uh, retirement accounts. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lori, what exactly happened to her restaurants and the properties that she owned? Uh, I know there was some kind of events before everything kind of came together. Can you give us a recap of like the the final act of Champion Kane? Well, part of um, the agreement that she struck um, 
a year ago with the SEC in which she also cooperated was um, that her assets were frozen and put into a receivership. And ever since then, that receiver has been going through this whole forensic accounting process. And it's, it's very complex and cumbersome because there's so many bank accounts and so many properties. So little by little, she's been trying to corral all these assets and try to, and, and she's not anywhere near done. And her most recent report said there's maybe about a net $15 million in assets because there was also a lot of debt associated with these. So some of those were restaurants um, where she owned the real estate and some where she owned the businesses or she just leased them. So little by little, they're selling either off those restaurants or that real estate. But the most recent sale, there were just a few, it netted very little because there was a lot of, they were highly mortgaged. So she's little by little, they've, um, most of them have closed. Um, there's new owners, for instance, Saskas that I talked about, they have a new owner and that's gonna be operated by somebody. So they're all in the spaces that, that where they, the spaces that they occupy are being taken over by new restaurants, but there's there's not much left um, that that she that she operated. So that her legacy as a restaurateur is pretty much finished. She also, as I said, short-term rentals, a beach-themed retail shop, um, a pizzeria, things like that. But they're they're no longer hers. They're as I said, they're frozen and, and in the hands of the the receiver, who's desperately trying to return as much money as she can to the um, to the investors. And she too wants to go over Chicago title. There's going to be a hearing next month. She wants the judge's permission to file suit against Chicago title. And also, uh, Greg, it seems that there's lots of uh, big scams being revealed in San Diego. Why don't you give us some context? Like what's going on here? Why here? Well, you know, the, the, the city of the area has a reputation of being kind of a uh, uh, Hot house or a hotbed for a lot of swindles and scams. I mean, I think that's true for a lot of places, but but here, you know, it, it seems to be, uh, or at least the U.S. Attorney's Office here seems to do it. I mean, just last week, uh, the the uh, fraud involving the former uh, rabbi of the Bada Poway, uh, uh, Israel Goldstein, they had a news conference on that, and that last week we were thinking, my gosh, this is just incredibly elaborate, and and what uh, it went on for years, and who could tell. And then on, you know, Wednesday, yesterday, we get this $400 million Ponzi scheme that, that was, you know, maybe not as elaborate, but certainly far greater than that. And and whenever we, you know, you do a story on a swindle or a scam in San Diego, you have to think back to kind of the granddaddy of them all, the J. David Dominelli scandal of the 1980s. Maybe a lot of people who live here don't remember that, but this was a very prominent guy uh, who really took a lot of money off of people. We said, Brewer said yesterday that this, that the champion cane is the largest uh, Ponzi uh, discovered in the district. It probably is true in terms of dollars. I, I got a, a little note today. I put that in the story. Uh, we put that in the story that a, a friend, I guess, did the math and said, you know, look, if you look at the loss or the, the J. David uh, uh, amount and uh, do the, the, the change in uh, dollar value over the years, his is still slightly larger. You know, I don't know. I mean, a hundred million there, a hundred million there. Pretty soon we're talking real money, as they say. So, you know, at that point you just kind of, you know, bombing the rubble. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it's not uh, it's unusual to have these kind of packed together so close. I think part of that is um, residue from the pandemic and and the slowdown and the closure of the courthouse. These these cases were stacked up. Um, I think 
I know the rabbi had signed his plea agreement back in November. I think Gloria and I looked, was it in April she signed this? Right. Uh, yeah, signed yeah. In April she was ready to go, you know, and then the courts really closed for March and, and most of April and things like that. And I think that's just kind of backed things up. So now they're rolling these out. I mean, historically, the U.S. Attorney's Office likes to do news conferences about large tax scams right before tax day. To kind of, you know, let everybody know that they're still there. So um, to have these two back to back, a little unusual, but to have this sort of, you know, scamming going on in San Diego, not not terribly unusual. Mm-hmm. And also, as this develops, uh, this is the question for both of you. What stories do you hope to write or questions you hope to answer in the coming months as we get more information about this scandal? Uh, Lori, when do you go first? Well, from from day one, I've been wanting to, and Craig knows this, wanting to interview some of the investors. Um, they were very skittish um, because they were wanting to see how this played out. There's also a sense of embarrassment. Um, I'm hoping that um, once the um, the settlement that I mentioned with the Chicago title is approved, that maybe some investors in that particular group will be a little more willing to talk because um Right now, they don't want to jinx their settlement, and I think uh, maybe they'll feel more, more comfortable. But I'd like to—I'd really like to hear the stories of what what convinced these people to to invest, why they felt comfortable doing it, um, and, and yeah, what the thinking is when when we often hear the maxim: if it's too good to be true, it probably is. So, what, what was their thinking? That's one of the stories I, I'd like to to, 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 to do more on. Yeah, I'm interested to see who else comes in, who else they bring in. Uh, certainly the Chicago title angle is interesting. Is that going to be individuals in Chicago title, the escrow officers, or are they going to say that this was a larger institutional problem that they either knew about or should have known about or had some sort of criminal liability for? I think that's maybe a harder case to make, but that'll be interesting. And then I'm kind of interested in, you know, kind of similar with the rabbi about Gina Champion Kane herself. This went on for a long time. Uh, she was a successful business person before that, um, and she, you know, like the rabbi, kind of fooled a lot of people. I mean, and we should say, including us, you know, she was on our Econometer uh, panel in the, uh, <laughs> in the in the business section, and the, and the rabbi was a guy. You know, we had to uh, promote uh, or be the keynote speaker at, at forums and things that we did. Yeah, you know, these people are very very good at at kind of living this dual life. I would be interested to know, was she ever really successful, you know, or was her, her previous uh, career or, or efforts, which really kind of elevated her to the point where she had this reputation, which allowed her to go out, acquire restaurant properties, and then, and then you know, market to and build on that and market to uh, investors or victims. And was there ever any there there? That would be kind of an interesting story. And, and where, did, where did it turn? You know, what was it that made it turn? Both for her and I think, you know, for, for Goldstein as well, that would be an interesting story to do. When, when, you know, when do you kind of turn that corner where, you know, you're going down the wrong path? Yeah, it does seem like we're kind of in a golden age for grift. So it's kind of curious to see what's going to happen. You know, it's funny. They say where the economy goes bad. That's when it's really, uh, that's when it really yeah. picks up. You know, people get desperate. They got to. They want the returns, you know, we're at zero interest rates. People are looking for things to do with their money that, I mean, the time is ripe, you know, to, to go after people. And we could be in that cycle for a while. Mm-hmm. So, 
And finally, I have one question from business editor Diana McCabe. Greg Moran, how'd you get today's A1 photo? Well, it's my uh, longstanding skills as a uh, photojournalist. Now, I, uh, it was, uh, you know, we were fortunate. Laurie has done so much work on this. We were able to kind of get the drop on everybody else that this was going to go down. I won't reveal how she did that. but uh, And so we're both in the courtroom, and I've covered a lot of these pleas. And so I, when you do it by yourself, there's always four or five things that happen, and the person really wants to get away. So at the end of the hearing, I just said to Laurie, look, I'm going to go downstairs and and get her a picture of her coming out because we didn't we weren't able to get a photograph of her coming in uh and then you stand up here and you try to you know if she wants to say anything you can say it and so it was just that kind of thing i was down there and uh sure enough she she walked out and uh began taking photographs with my cell phone camera and she was somebody in her entourage tried to block me off and do all kinds of nonsense and that's why the one usable picture that i took out of the seven or eight that i took I just happened to kind of get far enough ahead and, and turn around and use the uh, iPhone skills that my, my daughters have taught me to, uh, to get a, a, a usable photograph. And my career now is now complete with a front page photograph on the uh, front of the newspaper. So, And it's forever memorialized in the NBC uh, news clip that they showed of Craig chasing after her. <laughs> <laughs> trying, trying to get an angle. Yeah, it's, you know. That's a hard job. Yep. I mean, being yep. a news photographer, then that's no walk in the park. It's easier to sit in the in the room and take notes. I'll tell you that. <laughs> All right. Greg Moran, Lori Weisberg, thank you both so much. Thank you. You're welcome. In other news, California Governor Gavin Newsom's order to keep schools closed in counties with high coronavirus case numbers provoked disappointment from parents and schools and even a lawsuit. But a new poll of San Diego County shows that most adults agree with the controversial order. About 58% of county adults surveyed agree with Newsom's order that all public and private schools in most of the state's counties must stay closed until the county stays off the state's COVID-19 watch list for two weeks, according to results of a SurveyUSA poll released Thursday. 53% of county adults surveyed said schools should not physically reopen at all this fall, while 31% supported opening schools for a hybrid model of in-person and online learning. Only 10% supported opening schools for full-time in-person learning. Also in the pandemic, another 501 positive cases of COVID-19 were confirmed today, bringing the region's case total to 25,608. Another seven deaths were verified, bringing the region's death toll to 512. The nation now has more than 4 million confirmed cases. There were just 3 million 15 days ago. The San Diego Union-Tribune is hosting a contest to create the best public service announcement to remind people to stop the spread of COVID-19. We're soliciting listeners like you to come up with the best PSA for print, digital, or video. The winner of the contest will get a grand prize of $2,500, and their PSA will be published in the UT in various formats. The winner will also have the opportunity to be a guest on Fox 5 San Diego's Morning News. You have until August 16th to submit. For more details, go to uniontrip.com slash stop the spread. 
Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. If you're curious about how Greater San Diego is working toward building a new future after pandemic and protest, listen to the UT's Luis Cruz on Together San Diego. Every weekday afternoon, join in on conversations with activists, nonprofits, and companies who are finding out ways this moment can change San Diego for the better. Listen in on Facebook. For a guide to all of our live streaming programming, check out the schedule on uniontrib.com. Until next time.